and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. So I thought today we'd go in a slightly different direction. Instead of talking with an author or filmmaker, I thought it'd be interesting to speak with a literary agent. I know a lot of you listening are interested in writing, and this will give you a glimpse at what's going through an agent's mind when you send him or her your material. And it will also give us a fresh perspective on stories, what work, and maybe what don't. So our guest today, Steve Lobby, is a literary agent with nearly 40 years of experience in literary-related fields. He has worked as a bookstore manager and award-winning editor with Bethany House Publishing. He's also the president and founder of the Steve Lobby Agency, which has represented nearly 2,000 new books in genres ranging from romance to fantasy to theology. Steve is also the owner and president of Enclave Publishing, a publisher of fantasy and science fiction. So thanks for joining me, Steve. Well, I'm honored to be on. Thank you. Now, I've been hoping, actually, for a while to get you on the show, so I'm, I'm thrilled that we finally were able to coordinate our schedules. And um, I would say, first of all, it's really been fun to get to know you a little bit over the years as we've spoken at different conferences together. Um, and, and one of the things that I was thinking of was, I think you told me one time, now, you may have to correct me if I remember this wrong, but did someone once send you or contact you claiming that they were Jesus and that they had a story that they wanted you to represent them on? Yeah, yeah, they did. Um, yeah, it was one of those um, unsolicited phone calls. So it was an actually a, they, they somehow got our number and got through to me directly. <laughs> And they start telling, so I have this great story to tell, and I, I'm just kind of going, okay. And he says, it's, it's my life. And I went, okay. And I'm thinking memoir. And right. he goes, and what makes it really interesting is I'm Jesus Christ. <laughs> and I, <laughs> it was one of those moments where you don't know whether this is a God moment that I need to be careful what I say. <laughs> Or if this is an insane person that I need to really be careful what I say. Uh, and so now I can successfully and uh, very publicly announce that I have rejected Jesus Christ. <laughs> you have rejected. Now, I'm sure you have uh, other funny. interesting stories, you know, of people pitching, um, you know, manuscripts to you or calling you out of the blue. Do any of those pop to mind right now, interesting pitches or proposals that people have sent in? Well... I actually, now that you have asked, I actually have a little folder here, and I didn't even think about um, about this because I didn't even know you were going to ask me this. But I keep a a, a folder in my desk uh-huh. that I basically have for uh, humor and days when I just need to kind of laugh. And you know, I don't mean to mock these people, but they deserve it. Um, <laughs> I mean, some of these things are just completely outrageous it's like sending me a um, oh here's one yeah the word count is 670,000 pages uh, words 670,000 words yeah yeah I don't think so um, or this one where it talks about the storyline where you have two young people this is on the cover letter uh-huh. Two young people who think it'd be fun to create a Molotov cocktail out of a beer bottle, and they throw it in what they think is an empty shanty. And to their horror, they see a body in the shanty immolated. Now, that's horrific. 
Okay, so obviously yeah. that's the inciting incident, to use novel terms, novel writing sure. terms. And they kind of leave it at that. But then two paragraphs later, and with no preamble, they say, an editor that I've worked with on this manuscript calls it laugh-out-loud funny. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, exactly. I just went, uh, um... Oh, okay, uh, what's funny about this? Yeah. So there was a complete disconnect from their story pitch to their final, you know, hallelujah, isn't this going to be a great, you know, comic romp? Oh, my goodness. It's just crazy. very easy to reject something like that because <laughs> when, you, when you bark out in laughter at someone's query letter, it's not a good sign. Uh. <laughs> now, sometimes when I, I teach novel writing, I talk about how, you know, the beginning of your story, let's say the inciting incident or however you, you know, look at that orientation moment, but that that's a promise to readers oh, that, you know, if, um, if, if it's going to be a dark story like you just read, that's pretty dark to start with, but then have laugh all out funny, it's like you broke your promise to readers. Yeah. Well, my expectation was, okay, this is going to be a pretty hard, you know, book about, you know, two very guilty young boys and how yeah. they then deal with all that. And I get that. I, I, but to have the two paragraphs later, uh, no, I'm not even going to bother reading the first chapter. Yeah. yeah. They don't know what they're selling. Mm, that's good. You know, and that's an important yeah. thing for your, you know, your potential uh, writers out there is, if you're going to make a pitch, make a pitch that's consistent. Mm. Or tell me that it's a dark, or, or even lead with a dark comedic novel. Then I would have that expectation. Right. Uh, but anyway, yeah, those are th things like that happen uh, more often than people know. That's the danger of what we call the slush pile. <laughs> I know back in the day... Uh, well, actually, I still have a lot of rejection letters that I've kept over the years. But, but um, um, I know back kind of in the day, I would read some of those rejection letters at conferences, and people would laugh. And so, um, but these days, people don't really deal with the rejection letters so much. Instead, it seems like, at least from my perspective, if they get a rejection letter or two, then immediately they rush out and self-publish. Exactly if, right. And as if the self-publishing is the answer to bad writing. And that's such a mistake. Yeah. Um, I, am, I, I need to make sure I make this crystal clear. I am not anti-self-publishing. Right. In fact, I encourage it if you do it well. Hmm. But 90% of the people don't do it well. Yeah. They don't get the book edited. They don't get a good we get a good cover for it. They don't have a distribution plan. And so usually five times a week, I will get a physical book in the mail from someone who is self-published with a comment along the lines of, yeah, I self-published this and it hasn't gone well, so now I need a literary agent to make it work. <laughs> right. That's just not going to happen. Yeah. Because publishers actually look at books on on Amazon as a test market. Yeah. Huh. It's a public, it's a bookstore. It happens to be the biggest bookstore in the world, but if you've only sold 50 copies, which is what another query letter I recently said, received, yeah, yeah, my book has sold 50 copies, maybe you can help me publish, you know, sell more. <laughs> like, no. 
That's that's the size of your network. That is yeah. very impressive. If you've sold five or six thousand copies, now we have something to talk about. Mm, yeah, because it shows that there's interest out there for that yeah. story or that writer. Yeah, they have the ability. I mean, Hugh, to... Hugh Howey has the greatest story of that with his serial um, serial novel he did many years ago that turned into a best-selling book with Simon and Schuster. So it can happen. Yeah, is that wool? Yes, wool. Well, yeah, I have that on my shelf. I haven't, haven't read it, but um, but yeah, I, I think recommend, I do I recommend you do for yeah. this reason only. I waited until it was actually published in hardcover. I didn't yeah. buy the ebook version. I just heard all about it, and when I finished the book, I said, "Now I know why it sold a million copies." Hmm. It's it's really well done. It's one wow. of those science fiction books that kind of grabs your attention. Yeah, and just its setting. The drama, the nature of the uh, the literary devices to keep you working through the story to the end, it's brilliantly done. That's excellent. Yeah, well, that's good to know because you know I go, I have so many books that I want to read, and I have uh, I go by <laughs> recommendations a lot of times. Like people say, "Boy, you need to check this book out." That saves me an awful lot of time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm like, okay, good, someone that I know, respect, I can check this story out, check this book out. But but that becomes, I think what you said is the slush pile. I heard somebody say one time that, now this isn't to decrease the power of, of Amazon or, or to criticize them at all, but they said Amazon is the new slush pile. What they meant was that all of those books that get rejected by agents, like Instead of continuing to go through the circuits, people just end up self-publishing them, and it yeah. be, and and it, I think it hurts us all if um, if books being published are not high quality. Yeah. And often, and I, I'll probably be quoted in some other interview that I'm having later today because this is something I've been thinking about in anticipation of that conversation. But many times, the self-published author has a very limited budget for marketing. Yeah. So they use price as their marketing vehicle. Yeah. So they drop it so it's cheap, so someone will test it out. Well, the problem then is that it then creates an expectation at the consumer level. So a consumer, I have family members that say, I won't pay more than two ninety nine for an e-book. And I'm thinking, yeah. oh, crud. Yeah. There goes all my clients um, because, you know, the major publishers cannot afford to charge two ninety nine for a lead book, uh, mm. it doesn't make economic sense. Yeah, um, it's a it's a real challenge, and it's created some interesting dynamics in the fiction world uh, from an economic standpoint that we're all still trying to figure out. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a good you know way to look at it. I hadn't really thought about it in those terms before. People sometimes will ask me if they should self-publish or not, and basically I kind of have two responses. First of all, I think what you said is true, and that is that a lot of people self-publish too early, maybe before it's been edited well or before it's been uh, proofread and so on like that. And so I say, you know, it isn't so much where you publish, but it's when you publish. And I feel like a lot of those self-published books are published just too early. People have a good idea, maybe, um, but they haven't gone through all of the revisions that typically happen within traditional publishing. And The other question uh, I say, yeah. Well, I just want to tag on that just very briefly. I have a brand-new debut author. Um, 
actually with um, your new publisher, Thomas Nelson. And he's from Australia, never before published. So he visits the publishing company and met 35 people who had their hand in either editorial, production, marketing, sales of his book. And he was overwhelmed. He said, I had no idea. I said, well, that's why you get a small percentage of the, of the net revenue. Because you've got to pay all 35 people. <laughs> you've got to pay all those people. And I said, and if you were to self-publish it, you have to become all 35 people and be an expert like they are. That's a good and point. And there's your difference. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's true. And, and that actually sort of ties in with the second thing that I tell people, and that is the question isn't so much do you want to self-publish, but do you want to self-market? Because if you do self-publish, that's what's going to be. You're going to have to be right. a marketing genius to get it out there and to distribute it and so on. And so I think a lot of people kind of jump in too early to this idea, and they're like, well, it's so easy to self-publish. And I've heard, you know, different statistics, but I've heard 3,000 per day or self-books are self-published. It's probably even more than that by now because that, that statistic correct. is a year or two old. So Yeah, yeah. There, yeah. There's, there's 3 million books a year coming out. Wow, it's overwhelming. Yeah, it is. And how do you find the good stuff? So, well, that's what you're. That's one of the jobs that you have is to, is to become a gatekeeper so that publishers, when you come to them, they're like, okay, this is you know, this has been looked at. I respect this guy. I know that he's going to bring me stuff that's worth looking at, and it saves it saves them time. And I'm sure it it, um, it ends up that the clients that you have get you know looked at by the people who are actually the decision makers. Sure. I, I like to use or steal the word from the museum world as being a curator. Oh, yeah. And that I'm looking at all the various art pieces in this category and deciding, well, I like this new artist or this established artist, and yeah. I want to put them in part of the collection. The thing is, the editor at the publishing company is also a curator. So it's like we're in this, this back and forth Right. But you mentioned a couple of things in your, your description. When I first became an agent, um, 16 years ago now, I went to all my editorial friends that I had known as, a, uh, you know, as colleagues in the industry. Yeah. And I went to all of them and I said, I vow to never waste your time. Hmm. So if it comes from my e- e- email address, I'm asking for five minutes. That's all I'm yeah. asking. Maybe ten. And if you like what you see, then put it into the process. If you don't like what you see, okay, just say, not today. Yeah. And we have this ability, this relationship that they can trust what we're getting. We're not just going to sign every proposal that crosses the desk because that's, you know, that's kind of a waste of time. Yeah. And the other challenge is that everybody has different tastes. And this is one of the beauties of fiction is that... You know, you could read Wool on my recommendation, and I'm not going to say this is going to happen, but if you read it and you kind of go, oh, what's all the hullabaloo? What did Steve doesn't know what he's talking about? (laughs) Because your taste was different. And that's the nature of fiction. Sure. People can read the same book and have completely different reactions to it. So what you're hoping is you find something that's going to have, you know, going to fall on the positive reaction more than the negative and hopefully have people start talking about it. And that's what happens when the magic of fiction can occur and a breakout book happens. 
Uh, but it's not an it's not an exact science. <laughs> Stephen, you'll you'll appreciate this. I was once interviewed by a journalist for a leading publication. I won't name who they were, and the uh, the guy said, "So, what's the secret of a best selling book?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, if I knew, I certainly wouldn't tell you." Uh, <laughs> I said, "There is no magic formula." Because uh, if anyone knew what that was, they'd bottle it and keep it secret, and you know, take, yeah, every you know, book by their own island, you know. Yeah. But uh, it's it's very capricious. Uh, what can work one year might not work the next. I think I was talking with somebody once, and the discussion came up. You know, what sells a book? Buzz. Buzz sells a book when everybody's talking about a book. Well, what creates buzz? Buzz. About it. You know, it's like that's about it. But how do you create buzz in the first place? Nobody really knows. I mean, they'll try and it a million different things, but it changes. If you remember, yeah, uh, years back, it was the um, the video trailers, the book trailers oh, yeah, that people yeah. were doing created a lot of buzz. Yeah. Now it's more of a I don't really want to watch that. <laughs> and so now it's Instagram posts, or it's uh, Amazon ads, or it's, um, you know, things just adapt and change. And this is why I like to say this is why book selling is work. Yeah. It's not fun. It's not playtime. This is serious business because we're trying to create books that are going to have an impact in some way, some form, some fashion in this world. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, um, I mean, you want, so actually that's a good question. That, or, I mean, that's a good lead into my next question. That is, when you're looking at, let's just say fiction for now, but let's okay. say that you're looking at a fictional book, what, what is it that really grabs your attention or that you really say, this thing has everything firing on all cylinders and, and it might be something that you would want to represent? You know, everything starts with the craft of the writing in the first place. Uh-huh. How how adept that writer is with their words. Now, even if it's a kind of a dull story, sometimes a, a person's literary ability just takes you and transports you, and you mm-hmm. can just sense it. Um, I still like to read in hard copy. It's, you know, I'm very old school. My daughters like to drop the word school in that phrase. <laughs> okay, thank you for laughing at the joke. Uh, <laughs> but there's this, this feeling of if the pages keep turning and I don't notice the clock, yeah. there's something about this manuscript that's different. The fellow that I mentioned earlier who's debut author with Thomas Nelson, that's what happened when I read his manuscript. I, I even knew where the book was going. In my mind, I, I could yeah. figure out where it was headed, but I wanted to stay on the journey until I turned the last page and I, I said out loud, he did it. Wow. Oh, my goodness, he did yeah. it. Yeah. And the editor of Thomas Nelson agreed, and so now the book's out. So you have this kind of magic is what occurs. So it starts with the craft of writing. And you teach this, Stephen. You know, it's, it's all about that story but it isn't just the story itself. It is how it's crafted and how it's presented. Yeah. Then the next stage is the story itself. Is this an interesting story? Is this something I want to read? Um, I was at a writer's conference last week, and this 
you know, wonderfully impressionable 16-year-old kid sits down, and he really wants to learn how to write a novel, and had already written an 83,000-word novel. Oh, wow. 16 years old. Yeah. And he hands me his first chapters, and the first seven pages were in 10-point font, single-spaced, all backstory. Aha. Not a lick of dialogue. Nothing is happening. Yeah. So you look at an impressionable 16-year-old, and you think, I could either crush him yeah. or I could teach him. And I just looked at him, and I asked him a question. So what does these seven pages look like on screen hmm. when the movie is made? And he blinked, and I said, yeah. It's a black screen with a narrator talking for 23 minutes. <laughs> and he goes, oh, that's terrible. I went, yeah. You, got, you get the point? He goes, so I, in other words, I should start it with the action in the beginning. I went, bingo. He already <laughs> knew the idea. He yeah. just didn't execute it. And, and it's you, that you know, kind yeah. of simple thing that you would think, well, how come nobody knows that? Well, you don't know it until you know it. Yeah. Until someone and he commu- you. you communicated that to him in, in you know, language that he understood with the movie. Right. right. Yeah. yeah nice. I, you know, if you just say you can't do backstory, well, that's theoretical and academic sounding. Yeah. But I said, let's put this on the movie movie screen. What's going on? It's like it's a constant problem, Stephen, where yeah. you have backstory done in the beginning of a novel. Like the woman looking pensively out the bay window in her living room. Thinking and in her, in her, you're inside her head, and she's thinking right. all these thoughts. But I try to put it on the movie of my mind, and nothing is happening. Hmm. It's just quiet, and the birds are chirping, and the cat is meowing. But then yeah. Charlie walks in the room, and something happens because they start talking. And you, you just have to be very careful with that. Um, and that's a craft issue. There's almost nothing to do with the story. It's how you craft it. You know, it's interesting, this idea, I've been thinking about it a lot in the last year or two, is this idea of coincidence, is that readers, we really don't want stuff to happen out of nowhere, especially at the climax, when suddenly the guy's like, oh, guess what, I studied karate in high school 20 years ago, and he karate chops the guy, and you're just like, really? Well, that's convenient, you know. Well, it's the, the Duex Machina, where it just suddenly out yeah. of the clouds, it all yeah. yeah, yeah. But that, on the other hand, every story begins with a coincidence. We don't notice it. We don't really consider it a coincidence. I mean, no one's reading the detective novel saying, oh, yeah, right, the detective really gets assigned a case at the beginning of this story. Come on. No, right. of course, we get it, you know. Yeah. Or romance, you know, no one thinks, oh, yeah, really, they meet each other. <laughs> no, because we get it. They've got to meet get each it. other. We assume yeah. that it, it's right. actually how life happens. Yeah, and so we have this coincidence, but from there on, people don't want things in the story to be coincidental. They want them to be um, causally related or contingent. So, so anyway, the word organic. Yeah, yeah. That's how, that that's how I see it. It grows naturally. Yep. Yeah. And if it grows it's unnatural, we notice it. Um, you can think now. There's some great thriller writers, and that's uh, one of your genres. Yeah. Uh, but there's a lot of thriller writers who sometimes they will fall into that. Uh, how, how should I say? I can no longer suspend my disbelief. 
when the villain unloads an, an Uzi at my main character from 10 feet and misses. <laughs> and misses. Right, right, right. You're going, oh, he must be named James Bond because this is impossible. <laughs> and I get pulled out of the story. Right. I would yeah. rather, in a case like that, that the gun jams. Now, granted, mm-hmm. that would be a convenient thing, but it's much better than unloading and missing from 10 feet. Yeah, uh, you, we need to re- retain the believability all the way right. through, and as soon all as that's through. lost, you know, it, it creates that distance for the reader. Um, the other problem and, in craft is overwriting. Yeah. This is Tell where, us what you mean by overwriting. Well, I, I, I have to try to define this carefully so it's not misunderstood. Um, and I know why it happens. Many authors see the film in their head. Yeah. And they're trying to direct the reader to follow every action and movement of the character. And so then they write on the page... Sally picked up her red pen and moved it six inches. <laughs> I don't care. That's overwriting. I, that's yeah. detail that's completely unrelated or un, unimportant to the movement of the story. Yeah. Now, if moving that pen has some meaning, sure. But very often, I'll run into, this is in their usually debut authors, that they're trying so hard to write the story and paint the picture that they actually don't let my imagination work. Mm. And I think that's one of the powers of storytelling is to allow your reader have their own imagination of what's happening in the room. Um, You can only give so much direction before you're really intruding in in their imagination. Yeah, sometimes, this is, I think, a par- bit of a paradox, but the, sometimes the m- more you describe something, the less we're able to see it, which seems sort of opposite. But Good let's point. say you have a character, and you just describe her by saying, she turned every step she took into a Spanish dance. Well, readers can picture this woman. They, they oh, wow, she's seductive or whatever. She moves through the room and like this. Yeah. But if you'd spend, like, a whole paragraph trying to describe her hair and her eyes, which is way overdone, and the slope of her leg or all this stuff, after a while, readers are like, they're not going to be able to picture this character just as no. well as they could with the one, just the one little line. That's a great point. Yeah. Um, one that I'm, I'm going to try to quote it. I not, may not get it exactly right, but <laughs> it, was a phrase, it was a phrase in a novel where the novelist was trying to avoid using uh, four-letter words in foul language. Uh-huh. So he said, the cowboy dropped a bucket of curse words on the floor and continued to kick it around the room for a half hour. <laughs> what a visual. <laughs> you know exactly what he was saying and how long he was saying it and what he was doing yeah. but using the metaphor of the bucket. And the cowboy, you just go, okay, I'm there. Yeah. And I, I remember reading that and laughing. I'm like, well, it really wasn't funny, but it was really well done. That I mean, kind yeah, of that's... clever writing stands out in the crowd. Yeah. It really does. So we want to tell stories where we don't start with too much backstory. We want to start with the action, remove coincidence. Oh, and this is the other thought I had about coincidence is so many people will start a story and think that now they have to describe why everything is yes. happening. That's what you talked yes. about is backstory. Yes. 
Exactly. So they'll start, yeah, and then they'll, the, ne- the next chapter is all about how you became a detective. Well, none of that really matters right now. No, Get to the case. Yeah. Or if they they take a side character, like the waitress taking the order, yeah. and give her whole backstory. Yeah. But she never appears in the novel ever again. Yeah. We just need to know she's smacking her gums saying, what do you want? Yeah, it's true. Rather than, well, she had a rough life, and she lives in the trailer in the back of the parking lot, and it's just like, I, I don't care. Am I supposed to care? Because you yep. think if the author is giving me that amount of detail then this is an important character, and I need yeah, to absolutely. file her away in my head. So, yeah. Now, the thing about action right away, that also much depends on the genre. And when we define action, some writers take that to mean we need to blow up a Jeep right. or we need to have a hurricane or an earthquake or something. Uh, action can be as simple as just two people talking. Yep. Just that there's movement. I remember... Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I remember one um, writer's conference I was at, and this lady gave me something to look at. And in the first five or ten pages, there's this car chase or car accident, an explosion. I said, so you've written an action story. She said, no, it's a romance. (laughs) (laughs) I said, well, what happened? She said, well, she goes to the hospital and falls in love with the doctor. And I was like, but you set it up as yeah. this action story, you know? And she said, well, I had a different beginning, but my cr- writer's critique group told me I needed a better hook. Bingo. And the thing was, she, maybe she did need a better hook. I don't know, because I didn't see the original. But she chose one that made a promise in the wrong direction. Exactly. Yeah. She should have started with the ho- coming out of the coma in the hospital room. Yeah, there you go. And, yeah. you know, you know, seeing, you know, Dr. Kildare leaning over her and she falls and swoons and uh, <laughs> now we're getting corny but you it, right. there's that's but where the story it, starts yeah at least that ties in with where her story was going to go yeah but i didn't you mean know, to i didn't mean to interrupt you if you had the, another no, thought it's i was the same, to, it's the same yeah. problem with all genres yeah. because you yeah. have you know fantasy obviously in the fantasy world you do have a lot of world building that has to take place yeah because you're creating a world that isn't ours Right. And that's a real delicate balance uh, to be able to have uh, the beginning of Lord of the Rings with Gandalf walking, you know, traveling into um, the Shire. You're getting a setting being placed without a lot of action. Yeah. But you're not, fantasy readers are okay with that. But you can't do the same thing in a thriller. Yep. It, it really comes down to the kind of book you're writing. And make sure that as writers that are listening to this, don't mix genres when you're trying to craft something. Make sure you have a perfect idea of what you're writing for. So let me use a, a metaphor for that. I have run into a lot of creative people who do not, who, who resist the idea of staying within the lines or inside a box. Sure. They're saying, you're, you're restricting my creativity when you say things like that. I said, well, here's the problem. Publishers publish into boxes. Hmm. They publish into romantic suspense, suspense, thriller, romance, women's fiction, literary, fantasy. I mean, they're boxes. They have labels on them. Why do they do that? Because we as consumers buy books out of boxes. Hmm. We are a fantasy lover, so we go to the fantasy section. We go, we look for like-minded titles. Yeah. It's when something falls out of the box, it's really hard. 
so you say, well, there's always you know exceptions to that rule with genre bending or cross genre books that work. Right. Well, yeah, but they're also really, 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 really well done. Yeah. Like you think of Cinder by Marissa Myers was a, a so you know between fairy tale and science fiction because Cinderella's a robot. You kind of go, whoa, <laughs> that is so different. But she wrote it so well. Yeah that you're able to suspend all the disbelief and kind of carry forward, and you're, you're okay with that. But if you make the mistake of saying to the publisher, well, you need to change your mind and change your rules, yeah. you're, you're going to be fighting an uphill battle. Yeah. Now, do you think, um, I'll, do you think that comes... Um, uh, um, I'm trying to say is, do you think that writers end up thinking about genre first and and then writing a story to fit that, or that as they work on their story, just it's important to understand the expectations of readers of that type, so that they can shape it in that direction. I was thinking of myself, and there's a book that I recently wrote, which is hard for me to define. I feel like the story works, but I've been struggling with what to call it exactly. Right. Sort of a right. near future thriller, which right. I think is probably the best description, but. Um, well, but you, can anyway, have, yes. you can have techno thrillers. You can have science yeah. fiction. You know, it, it's hard when you're in an area that's near future because what is it? Yeah. Is it science fiction or is it, you know, kind of modern day uh, kind of thing? And those tend to just fall into their natural categories right. of a thriller. When you start sticking that same setting and put it on Alpha Centauri, well, then it's right. But if it's only 10 years in the future or 20 years in the future, it's possible it could actually happen as written. Hmm. Yeah. That has a different implication, and it's not really a, a genre bender. It's more of a um, futuristic thriller yeah. Yeah. without being yeah. science fiction. Yeah, those, are yeah, great, those are great questions to ask. Yeah. It's good that we discuss these, and I think what your listeners are realizing is that these are the questions we agents ask. Yeah. And helps maybe understand why some people get rejected. Sometimes it, they're a great writer, great story. I don't know how to sell it. Now, Steve, I, you work at, or not work at, but you speak at a lot of different events. I know, I know I've seen you at different conferences throughout the country and often teaching, keynoting, um, and meeting with people. Right. Now, when you meet with people, often they'll come with their pitch. Right. I was curious if you could give us a hint or two about maybe an effective pitch or if you have, <laughs> if you want to come at it the other way, like what would sure. make a really ineffective pitch. But yeah. you no know, people are always wondering, how can I take this idea that I have, this book that I have, and get an agent to actually look at it? Sure. The biggest thing to, uh, to start with is how much time are you going to have? Because oh, some places sure. give 10 minutes, some people give 15, some give 20. So right away it changes the dynamic. Um, 10 minutes is almost no time at all. Yeah. And even in 15, you have to realize that probably not a whole lot of your manuscript is going to be read in that time. Yeah. So what I like to do, is the way I like to express it, is number one is relax. You're not going to change the world in the next 15 minutes. Right. You're not going to get me as an agent so enamored with you that I come across the, the, the desk with a contract saying, sign here. That's not going to happen. 
because what am I doing? It's like an interview. Yeah. I'm, I want to know you. I want to hear you. I want to hear your pitch. And often people will make the mistake if they have practiced their 50-word pitch, they yep. sit down, rattle it off like a robot, and then just pause and look at me in anticipation. <laughs> I haven't read anything yet. I don't know yeah. you. Um, and so I might ask a few other questions and then say, do you have anything that I can look at? Well, then I'm looking at either the one sheet or a proposal, and I'm getting a yeah. concept of the story. And I'm also listening to how you express it. Because if you cannot articulate your story, no one else can. Mm-hmm. And I, can, I have to be thinking, can I translate your passion and help the proposal in such a way? Because it's going to go in an editor who has never met you. Yeah. So it's got to translate multiple times from the editor to the marketing to the sales um, and all the way eventually, if it's contracted, all the way to the consumer without ever having met you yeah. at the same time. I'm looking for that engaged, um, articulate person with a passion for their story and why it's important. Um, and sometimes it's all about that first meeting. Hmm. And then I say, you know, send it to me or I'm happy to take a look at it. Here's my card. And then when I get it later, if you're smart, you remind me that we talked. <laughs> I'm not going to probably remember you. Uh, include your picture in the proposal so I can make the connection with the face. Hmm. That's good. And then I read it. And, you know, nine times out of ten, it's not ready or yeah. it doesn't deliver on the promise, but you had your chance. It yeah, you got it read, you got it looked at, sure. You got it looked at, and that's part of the game. Yeah, I um, I know that a lot of people do work, just what you said, like a 50-word pitch or, or something like that, and I was talking with one of, uh, one, an, an executive from Hollywood who'd worked on um, the X-Files and Buffy the Vampire Slayer and just a number of other, I think, Battleship Galactica, too. And anyway, he had worked on what super successful shows. And I said, what, what, what is it that, you know, if I have a pitch or something that you're looking for the most? And he's like, you. Right. I'm like, what? Exactly. <laughs> what do you mean, me? <laughs> like, yeah. like, I want to know why you're passionate about it. I want to know who you are and why you why are you the one to write it and stuff? Yeah. And, and you brought so out true. the same point just now. You it's, said, I want to know so you. True. I yeah. want to know you because you are the talent. Yeah. I'm not. Goodness, I admire writers. What you guys do is impossible. <laughs> but when my job is to help you succeed. Yeah. Not to do it for you, but if you can't articulate what you have, if I don't sense a a career-minded person, if I don't get a feel of how they're going to handle rejection or, or success, yeah. yeah, that's a lot to try to read into 15 minutes. But, um, you know, seriously, my friends, how many of you uh, sat in a job interview and you felt like you got the job in 15 minutes? Yeah. You know, or or you true. felt like, wow, I, that was a bomb. Uh, it's, it's the same same thing. It's I compare it a lot to American Idol, hmm. where you sit down and you sing three three notes. Then Paula Abdul says, "Oh, you're so sweet," and then Simon Cowell just grumps at you and said, "Get some lessons, buddy." <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I'm the Simon Cowell. <laughs> I'm 
not really, but, but it is. No, you're not. It does feel that way. It does feel that way when you yeah. when you have to tell somebody you're not ready. And but then you say, but here's the tools you can get to become ready. Yeah. And if you take you know take the long journey, shoot, I have an author that. Um, her, her manuscript, I really loved the opening chapter, absolutely loved it, at a writer's conference. I said, send me the rest. Well, we looked at the rest, and man, it didn't deliver, but I said, she's such a good writer with so much promise. So we gave her feedback. Yeah. She rewrote it, the entire manuscript, sent wow. it again. We looked at it and said, there's still some magic missing. Yeah. Gave her some, some feedback. She rewrote the whole manuscript a third time, and that's the one that I showed to a publisher, and it sold in six days. Wow! And then she won an award in the uh, in the uh, the market, the Christie Award, yeah. as the best oh, wow. writer. And it, I just look back on that and saying there was something magical about her, yeah, and about those first that first chapter that I knew there was something special here. Huh. Now it doesn't always work that way. Yeah. And what if she had never been able to d- deliver the rewrites? Then we would have just said, well, you know, sorry, and moved on. But she put the time in. and She did. It took and, almost um, a year. Yeah, wow. She really but worked She's on that. her seventh novel, I think, now, something like oh, that. Oh, wow, fantastic. So, I mean, yeah, she has a neat. career out of it. Yeah, I like that. I like stories like that because it shows, you know, very often when I speak to people through the Story Blender, they'll bring up this idea of perseverance and how so many authors, really the ones who have made a living at doing this thing, a lot of it is perseverance. Yes. Um, It really is. It's sticking with it and being able to accept the rejections for what they are, and it's just a not now. It's not a forever, don't ever talk to me again as long as you live, I hate you. Yeah. That isn't what the rejection is. It's just what I'm looking at. Stephen, at this conference I was just at, it became a joke in the room as they were introducing all the faculty. Or It was in the faculty meeting. There were about 60 faculty members. Oh, boy. And someone made a joke about Steve Lobby had rejected them early in their career. And everyone <laughs> laughed, and I was the butt of the joke. And it was just like, that was funny. <laughs> well, then others began saying the same thing. It organically became the theme of the faculty meeting. Oh, no. Someone finally said, by a show of hands, how many in this room have been rejected by Steve Lobby? And it was 70% of the room. Oh, my. And these are the faculty members. Yeah. These are the published authors. And I just had to kind of go, sorry, guys, <laughs> but, you know, 15 years ago, you weren't ready. Yeah, Exactly. But you didn't give up. Yep, and they stuck with it. And you stuck with it. Hopefully you're much. still friends. <laughs> oh, exactly. <laughs> we're all friends, which is why yeah. we're teasing everybody mercilessly. Yeah. Yeah. But that's the nature of this business. These are not grumpy people that's saying, don't bother me. You know, we agents, the, 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 the editors, we want new talent. We want to encourage it. Yeah. But it oftentimes takes the form of a no thank you. Now, some people have, have said that um, agents, when they look at things, they're just looking for something to say no. Other people have, I've talked to say, no, they're exactly the opposite. They're just looking for a reason to say yes. Yeah, and that's What's, true. It, it's, so that second one is true? Yes, it is true. Yeah. We're looking yeah. for a reason to say yes, unfortunately. I can't take everything. 
Right. I mean, I personally get over 2,500 proposals a year, unsolicited. Oh yeah. Doesn't include our clients or anything else. And I might be able to take two of them because oh, wow. I have a full client list. Sure. Um, but there are times when it happens, and sometimes it's someone who has darkened the door before. Yep. And now it works. And there are other times where I feel a little more gregarious, and I might take five or six. It all depends on the nature of the book and the marketplace and what I'm trying to sell, because I do also fiction and nonfiction. So you have you know, different, sure. different market opportunities in the nonfiction world than you do in fiction. Let me just ask you really quickly about the nonfiction. Are there specific... I, I'll, I guess I'll say fiction writing um, or storytelling skills that really translate well into writing nonfiction. I tell every one of my nonfiction writers yeah. to take fiction classes. Oh, interesting, yeah. Because they're telling stories that happen to be true. Yep. And it's the same techniques. How do you have a voice? How do you make in the dialogue between two people in a descriptive story, how do you make them sound different? Nice. Uh, dialogue tags, um, pacing, all those things that come into storytelling. Uh, you think of the Guideposts magazine where you have true life stories that are being told, and they're dynamic and dramatic yeah. in 1,500 words. Yeah. yeah. That's fiction technique in a nonfiction story. Now, granted, you if you're writing a, um, you know, a textbook on, you know, how to adopt your child, that's uh, not quite as helpful because it's a textbook. But you still want to have a smooth, storytelling-friendly style that you have the person sitting across from you with a cup of coffee and you're teaching them. Yep. Um, and it's, it's an absolute, absolute fact. I... I recommend it all the time. Wow, that's great. I've, uh, I've really enjoyed uh, just your time here today and, and the chance to sort of pick your brain about some of these common mistakes that people make and, and just kind of to hear your heart. Your heart is about bringing great stories to editors and letting them find readers and, you know, uh, whatever... Um, I guess stereotype people might have of agents as being yeah. <laughs> mean or, or rejection laden uh, or whatever. It's, they're called money growing parasites. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> but um, I'm sure no one listening thinks anything along those lines. It's been very <laughs> practical and helpful, and uh, it's it's good to good to pick your brain a bit. Um, so thanks for being th thanks for being on the show, Steve. And well, thanks for inviting me. This is great. Yeah, and thanks to everyone for listening. Um, to connect online, um, it, let's, I don't know if you want people to submit to you or if you want them to check oh, out you your can, website. You can go to our website, which sure. is my name, stevelobby.com. Sure. If you misspell it, L-O-B-B-Y, you'll still get to me. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah, go to check, check, you know, check it out, out if you're an author. And, we're doing, yeah. Yeah. And if you're an author and you go there, um, you know, you might... Um, you know, follow the proposal guidelines. I'm sure they're on there as far as contacting him. And, yeah, they are. And um, but um, that'd be that'd be great. So, my um, books are on my website, stephenjames.net. For more info about our other guests and more broadcasts, click to thestoryblender.com.
And thanks to Suspense Radio, who's been hosting us for these years. And also, please check out their other stellar broadcasts and subscribe to those. And always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.